0: Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome, and thanks for joining us. I just spoke with Richard J. Smith about his new book, The I Ching: a biography, that came out with Princeton University Press in 2012. This is a book that is satisfying to general readers and to specialists alike. It's a biography, and, and we'll talk over the course of our conversation about what that means and what kind of analysis and approaches that conceiving of a text as a biography entails and what kind of opportunities it opens up. It's a biography of one of the most important texts in Chinese history and really in the history of text itself. You'll see that over the course of this book, the I Ching as a divinatory tool, as a rhetorical text, as a tool that's used in everything from military affairs to music, Transforms and becomes taken up in contexts that are well beyond its origins sometime um, about 3,000 years ago, perhaps BCE in China. Over the course of our conversation, we'll talk about not just Rich's background as a potential baseball player, um, which fascinated me, but also um, the use of the text in the work of some major scholars in China, in the work of people in Tibet, in Japan, in Korea, in Vietnam, and also ultimately by artists and musicians uh, in the U.S. and well beyond. So it's a fascinating book. Uh, it was really a pleasure to talk with Rich about it, and I hope you enjoy. We're here today to talk with Richard J. Smith about his new book, The I Ching, A Biography. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Rich, and thank you so much for making the time to talk with me about the book today.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you, Carla.
0: So, Rich, could you start us off by saying a little bit about what brought you to the field? How did you find your way to the history of Chinese classics or early China? What brought you to this general field?
1: Well, Carla, <laughs> I <laughs> That's have... a question. Well, I have a peculiar uh, background. Uh, The last thought I ever had in my life was that I would be a scholar of any sort. Uh, I came from a family of teachers and expected to be a secondary teacher like a whole slew of them. Uh, But I also wanted to be a baseball player, and I thought before I defaulted uh, to a teaching career that I would uh, try baseball. So I went to college thinking, that that's what i was going to do and uh, i wasn't bad at the at the game but in my senior year uh, i didn't do well and although i had an offer in my, my junior year from the phillies actually in the senior year was uh, extremely bare and at that time the vietnam war was heating up and graduate school was an attractive option to military service in vietnam and so the combination of things uh, caused me to gravitate uh, to uh, Chinese history, where I had taken a course as an undergraduate uh, from a teacher named Liu Guangjing, who was one of John Fairbank's students, uh, and I just accidentally went in. It wasn't an accident, actually. I, I entered it because uh, the girl that is now my wife and then my girlfriend was taking a course with him, and I thought it would be romantic to sit in and take notes, and she made me do well <laughs> by virtue of competitive presence. And so uh, I did well, and Professor Leo saw some little nugget of potential and said, If I stayed at the program then uh, he would get me into graduate school, <laughs> which i couldn 't otherwise have gotten into, and get me an any d f l uh, foreign language fellowship, sent me down to Stanford for uh, ten weeks of intensive Chinese language training, and that was the beginning of of my career in chinese studies, and he handed me my dissertation topic, which I dutifully uh, did on foreign intervention in the Taiping Rebellion and uh, made that into my first book and was very interested in the cultural dimensions of military history. And so later on I wrote a book called China's Cultural Heritage, which went through a couple of incarnations and um, it uh, got me even more interested in issues of ritual and cosmology and so forth. And so uh, I – went then into a collaboration with John Fairbank to write three books on the Imperial Maritimes Customs Administration. And again, there, my interest was in the cultural side of people like Robert Hart and H.B. Morse as the Qing Dynasty employees. And John was very interested, actually, in their personal lives. So we, we made a good team. But as I explored... Uh, these issues of how China employed foreigners, whether in the military or in civil life, I got ever more interested in the sort of nuts and bolts of Chinese culture, particularly uh, divination and things of that sort. And then I got interested in maps and in almanacs. And so I wrote a few small books on those topics and a, a major book on uh, divination that, to tell you the truth, never got the attention that I thought it should. <laughs> but uh, in any case, um, it was called Fortune Tellers and Philosophers. And in that, I got very interested in the debates about uh, late Qing uh, cosmology. John Henderson had written a book uh, called The Rise and uh, development, no, the development and decline, I think he said, of of Chinese cosmology. And on the basis of the work that I had done, I didn't see any such decline. And so uh, I wrote this book in part to uh, nuance the issue that John, who wrote a very good book, um, that John had initially um, written about. And so anyway, uh, of course, if you're going to work on Divination—you are going to be eventually drawn into the vortex of the I Ching, and so I spent about ten years working on the I Ching. And uh, in in the book, the two thousand eight book uh, that I wrote on the domestic evolution of the I Ching, called "Fathoming the Cosmos," I yeah, you know, I described it as a black hole <laughs> that, uh, you know from which no one can escape. You know, this uh, powerful pull, uh, and so uh, I got very interested in its domestic uh, evolution and then I got interested in its transnational travels and that was part of a project also that developed here at Rice. We have something called the Transnational China Project and my colleague at the time Ben Lee and I put this program together and now my colleague Steve Lewis runs it beautifully Um, and there I had a, I gained an awareness of the importance of transnational Phenomena, you know, the way that people and products and practices and skills and technologies and so forth circulate, and that became uh, almost an obsession with me. And so, the latter part of the um, uh, the biography, the I Ching, deals, as you know, with that uh, with that topic. So, I guess if you ask me how to characterize my my basic approach to Chinese history and culture, it is that I, I'm i interested in how the Chinese at all levels ordered their existence. And the kind of slightly glib way that I put it in, the, uh, in a collection of essays that I wrote called Mapping China and Managing the World was that I, I thought that cartography ordered space and that, let's see, what the order was in history, orders the past, the ritual orders the present, divination orders the future, and that's an oversimplification in lots of ways, but it helped me to think about this critical question of zhi, of, of order in Chinese culture, and so that's really the way the book unfolded, and when Princeton asked me uh, to write uh, this um, biography of the I Ching, I just got very interested in thinking about it as an ordering mechanism. And that was the same impulse that um, when Rutledge asked me to write this book on mapping China and managing the world, I mean, they they all seemed to fit together, that it was all about ways of world making, ways of structuring experience. And so that's probably much too long an answer for you.
0: No, that's fantastic. Um, that's great. And it, you're also raising um, for listeners some really key issues that are going to come up later on in the book and later on in the conversation. So this is actually a perfect introduction. Oh, thank you. So the book that we're talking about today is a study of and an introduction to one of the most famous books in Chinese history, the I Ching, which is also called The Changes, the I Ching. Um, It's transliterated in in many, many different ways in the extant scholarship. And you um, very helpfully go through this issue at the beginning of the book. The book is geared specifically to non-specialists. Um, and this, uh, I, I just want to say uh, congratulations on doing that so well, because <laughs> the book is its extraordinarily readable. It's extraordinarily readable and completely assignable. Um, and listeners may may not know this, well, won't have known this at this point, but I've already mentioned to you that I'm going to be assigning this absolutely next year. It's very assignable, it's very readable, um, but it doesn't sacrifice a really interesting analytic heft for that. And so so even even though it's geared to non-specialists, specialists are also potentially going to get a lot out of this, and especially, especially, especially um, in the second half of the work, which is just fascinating, and we'll get to that. Bob Dylan, you know, John Cage <laughs> craziness um, in, in the most wonderful way. So it traces, um, ultimately, especially in the second part of the book, the text over not just time, but over space and and attempts to, I think successfully, attempts to account for its appeal, um, both in China and well beyond. Now... You've spoken a little bit already um, to the issue of how this particular topic fits within the larger trajectory of your work, but um, can you speak a little bit to the book itself? So this is um, let's talk about it a little bit in the context of the series um, that it's part of, and the kind of approach that you take given that series. This mm-hmm. is this is part of a larger series called Lives of Great Religious Books. So since this is a topic that you've actually written about both in the the 2008 book, and in this other um, collection that's just out from Rutledge called uh, Mapping China and Managing the World, and cartography, and, and, and sort of these issues, how does... Uh, How did the particular nature of this series and the kind of work that this book in particular was meant to do shape, if at all, the approach you took to this book? Um, And please feel free um, in in the course of talking about this to talk about, to whatever extent you'd like, the way that this might differ from the kinds of approaches that you took in, for example, the, the Rutledge book that just came out.
1: Well, that's a wonderful question uh, and uh, not entirely easy to answer, but uh, what, what you find if you're around in the field long enough is that eventually people will come and ask you to write books, whereas as we all know in our early careers, we want desperately for, uh, you know, we, we uh, explore every channel trying to find somebody to do this. And so I was lucky enough uh, to have a couple of people who knew a little bit about my work and thought enough of it, I guess, to ask me to do these works. Uh, and hence, uh, Mark, Mark Selden was the one that was the prime mover behind the mapping China and managing the world. Um, and Fred Apple at uh, the Princeton University Press had contacted me about uh, doing this, uh, this series. And so he told me quite a bit about it. And he mentioned that, uh, that some of the books that were on tap at the time were the Book of Mormon, uh, let's see, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, uh, Bonhoeffer's uh, Letters and Papers from Prison, which is a fascinating book. Uh, Augustine's Confessions, Genesis. Um, I think John Spence is going to do something on the Analects. Uh, the Bhagavad Gita ha- it was, is also on tap. I mean, there seem to be about 20, 25 books, as I recall correctly. And uh, so he gave me an idea of what he wanted. And I said, well, you know, in a certain way, the Yijing doesn't seem like a a really religious text, but it is definitely spiritual. And so uh, if spiritual and religious are close enough, then I think I, I could comfortably uh, talk about the book. But as you say, it is it is somewhat different than what I've done before. It's far less technical. And um, I wanted to add that if you're going to use this in your courses, I hope you have 400 students. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, as you know, in the field, we don't really write for uh, – for profit, we don't write for uh, you know royalties, and if they come, that's fine. But certainly, this book, I was thinking primarily uh, that it gave me an opportunity to talk about uh, the changes in a uh, in a format that would be accessible and would allow me uh, to try to figure out how to uh, to structure very complicated things in ways that made them more accessible and um you know less daunting and i have to tell you the story i will not name names but when when i first uh when i wrote the first draft of this book um i <laughs> I really shouldn't tell this story, I'm sure, but uh, my very best friend, a uh, colleague of mine at Rice, uh, I gave him a one of the chapters, one of the more dip- complicated chapters, and he and I have a long history of trading books and commenting on one another's works, and Usually, when he sends me his drafts, I just say, Wow, this is great. I don't have much to say. He always has something very uh, incisive and interesting to say. But this time around, he said, Here's my advice throw the book out and start over. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And we're good enough friends so that I didn't, uh, I didn't uh, put sugar in his gas tank or anything. Uh, and he was right, you know, that I still had this. Um, the preoccupation with all the detail and the refinements and the scholarly arguments. And I I finally said, look, if you want to, I said to myself, you know, if you want people to get those things, then have them read the fathoming, the cosmos and uh, try again. And so I tried again. And my long suffering wife who was always my editor. um, There's a little shout out to Lisa. Uh, I love you, girl. Um, uh, I uh, had her, I had him revamp my way of thinking, and then I had her as a non-specialist uh, look at the book. And so if I've been at all successful, those are the reasons.
0: Now, the book is a biography of a text, and it's explicit about, um, about the nature of the text being a biography. Can you talk a little bit about that? What does it mean for you to offer a biography of a text, and how did that shape the kind of work that you decided to do in the book?
1: Well, uh, thank you for getting me on track. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, What it did, first and foremost, is it get me to think very hard about origins uh, and to think about what it would mean for a text to be born. And uh, as I thought about other great texts, I mean, it's, you know, the I Ching in certain ways can be comparable um, to... Uh, the Vedas and, uh, you know, the Talmud and, you know, various other kind of, uh, uh, religious books. Uh, and I, I don't think some of them are actually going to be dealt with systematically in the, in the lives of great religious books, although that list could go on forever. Uh, but I started thinking about, you know, the origins of the Bible and the origins of the Vedas and, um, you know, all of these great religious works. And I realized that they were similar in the sense that it's very difficult to, to, Uh, talk about a beginning point, you know, if you're going to talk about Bonhoeffer's letters, uh, you can do that. Uh, But, um, you know, for most of these great works, they're amalgamations, they go way back in history. Uh, You know, we, we can't find an urtext uh, of the of the I Ching for 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 certain and so we try to sort of put together the pieces and and think about it as a as a product of several different forces or several, uh, several different historical moments in which various versions of the text get produced um and so it's a kind of uh, multiple uh, multiple origins uh way of going about it and then gradually of course the text as in many other um, uh, textual traditions, uh, becomes uh, at some point a a kind of classic, designated as a classic, and from that point onward, the commentaries become the critical uh, means by which to develop uh, that text. And uh, John Henderson, uh, in addition to his uh, groundbreaking book on cosmology, uh, also did a wonderful book uh, in which he uh, compares uh, the textual traditions from various Cultures and shows this sort of common process by which these um, somewhat um, obscure and amorphous uh, textual traditions begin to coalesce into classics and how then commentary drives them. And it's a, it's a wonderful uh, book. I think it's called um, Text. Uh, um, Is it script,
0: something like Scripture Canon Commentary or
1: something? Uh, that sounds right, Scripture Canon Commentary.
0: I may be getting that wrong, too.
1: Uh, well, you're, <laughs> I think you're right, actually. Uh, but anyway, that's a wonderful book, and it helped me enormously in thinking about how to approach this biography and how similar, really, the evolution of these works uh, was. And
0: an approach that's biographical uh, also lets you emphasize and bring out the importance of transformation of the text and the kind of life cycles of the text, I think. And this is one of the things that comes out and really comes to the fore later on in the book. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because just as a side note, um, historians of medicine are also using this approach of a biography of a disease Mm -hmm. more and more in books that are coming out certainly the past five, 10 years. And um, again, I think there's an emphasis on Perhaps, I wonder if this is humanities-wide, I don't know, but let's just, I'll just say, <laughs> for the uh-huh. sake of argument or putting it out there, there seems uh-huh. to be an emphasis on uh, objects as transforming and on transformation and change, rather kind of a working against the assumption of stability in a text, in a disease concept, in bodies. That's, I think, really interesting. And the, the biographical approach of the I does that really well here.
1: Well, thank you. In fact, I think you're right. Uh, that one of the things is that has attracted me uh, about uh, the idea of writing biography is seeing exactly what you've been describing. Uh, this idea of, of uh, seeing a text as growing and developing and and evolving and evolution, not in the sense of a sort of single trajectory. You know, I think we, that um, people like Stephen Jay Gould and others have disabused us of the idea that, uh, that evolution is just some sort of linear upward movement, you know, and we see evolution now as moving in different directions in response to different conditions, uh, and so the evolution of a life or the development of a life is a, a much better metaphor for capturing that dynamic and, and um, complex process.
0: Sorry, And incidentally, Steve Gould was my thesis advisor as an oh, undergrad. <laughs> so, mad props to the evolutionary biology community. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you mentioned um, just now the importance of the issue of um, origins, what it means for a text to be born. And as we work our way into the text itself of, of the book here, um, you give us, uh, you start out by giving us a kind of capsule history of the early um, emergence of transformations of the text. Mm-hmm. So for listeners who may not be familiar with this, um, I'll just very briefly mention um, the changes first took shape about 3000 years ago as a divination manual. And it's, it's important Uh, as a a kind of tool of divination. And the way that that changes will be something that um, we'll talk about later on in our conversation. It consisted of 64 six-line symbols known as hexagrams. And so we'll, we'll, I'm sure, be talking about hexagrams and using that word later on. At some point in the Zhou dynasty, and certainly no later than the 9th or 8th century BCE, each hexagram acquired a name. It acquired a brief description known as a judgment, and it acquired a short explanatory text for each of its six lines called a line statement. And after that, um, we see Myriad transformations thereafter, but this is kind of the basic um, baseline of what you need to know about this text, I think, in order to understand the nature of its transformations later on. The text allows for an enormous amount of uh, interpretive flexibility and variability, and the consequences of that um, we'll see as the conversation continues and certainly as the book continues now chapter one um, of uh, of the book and, and this is the book is separated into two parts the The first part focuses largely on the evolution of the Yijing text in China, and the second part of the book looks at its transformations and evolutions beyond China. But the first chapter it looks at the origins of the Yijing, and it talks a lot about the mythology that surrounds the text. Now we've talk, I've, I've mentioned a little bit about the uh, the kinds of textual traces that certainly early on get accreted to this text. But I also mentioned something very briefly that I'd I'd love if you could talk a little bit about because this becomes so important later on, and that is the origin of this text as a book of divination as a kind of divination tool. Um, because this takes various shapes, and again, we'll we'll come back to this later on. Could you say a little bit about that? The context of the aging um, and in its Early or early to mid stages in the context of divination?
1: Sure. Uh, as, as a matter of fact, uh, that's, I think, if it were not a text of divination. Uh, it's difficult to imagine that it would have had the kind of traction that it would later have. But by the same token, if it had remained only that, it would probably would have had limited utility and been just one of a number of these divinatory texts. But I think it's, it's very important to recognize. And of course, Carly, you know this already, but for, a, for a listening audience, it's really important, I think, for us to understand that as early as Chinese history goes back, certainly Shang dynasty, that, um, Divination was a central cultural activity, and it remained a central cultural cultural activity uh, for the next 3,000 years or so, 4, 000, almost 4,000 years. And so I think whereas we look at the Western tradition and uh, particularly biblical traditions uh, and other traditions that uh, denigrate a divination, I mean they have prophets to be sure, but the act of divination is denigrated. It was never so denigrated in China that if there were criticisms of divination, it was by the practitioners for distorting the practice, because it had much too hallowed a classical background to uh, to ignore. So uh, the idea that divination was a central cultural activity in China throughout its history is a very important one to keep in mind, and it allowed the I Ching uh, to uh, maintain its importance as a divinatory text, even as it evolved in ways that you've uh, suggested. Uh, but uh, if it hadn't been only a divinatory uh, text, as I mentioned, it would have just been one of a number of those kinds of texts, but these um, uh, commentaries that become known collectively as the Ten Wings uh, transform it into a philosophical text with a cosmological rationale so that even though it retains its importance as a divinatory text, it also uh, becomes important as an explanation of the of the workings of the cosmos and so at a critical historical moment Uh, basically in the late Zhou dynasty and the early Han, uh, this was a a perfect blend of influences, divination, cosmology, and so forth. Um, And so the the tradition that attributed this work and the commentaries, that is, these ten wings to Confucius gave it a a tremendous cultural weight that it continued uh, to have for the next 2,000 years. Great.
0: Now, the... The ways that the text or that information is presented in the text is another really interesting thing that you mentioned here early on in the book. And I'll just mention um, two things for listeners that were especially eye-catching for me. One was, again, going back to this early context of divination in the text, the references to sacrifices and the the sacrificing of bodies, some Mm. with really gory details. Um, (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) I mean, really, really um, explicit but fascinating. Um, because of that. Also the importance of the imagery of nature. Um, And I think this will um, come up again when we talk about later on the ways that this text is and has been related to the history of science and medicine, both in China and beyond. There are really interesting resonances here for scholars of the history of science and the history of medicine, depending on how you want to read the text and its um, commentaries and its later interpretations. Well said now, now from six hundred BCE onward, the text begins to be used not just for divination but also for as you as you put it here rhetorical effect. This is a really crucial shift, um, and it 's a shift that is in part Um, sort of concretized, and um, how do I want to put this? It's a shift that takes on special import once we get to the context of the commentaries attached to this text, which you've already mentioned, called the Ten Wings. Now, the importance of the Ten Wings, as you really bring out um, for us in the book, to what happens later on with the text, both in China and beyond, can't be overemphasized, right? It's crucial for making the text a classic and for, as you put it here, vastly enhancing the symbolic repertoire of the text. Could you speak a little bit to, or perhaps not a little bit, as much as you like, um, <laughs> to um, what are these ten wings? And um, can you explain why and how they do become so important to the text as we know it?
1: Oh, yes. I mean, another very good question. It These texts um, are added to the I Ching by stages, Uh, and there are different versions, uh, different redactions of these uh, commentaries, so that the ones that were finally designated as the sort of orthodox uh, or classical or state-sponsored versions of the Ten Wings uh, in 136 BCE, uh, those versions um, are only some of the versions, and I suspect strongly. Uh, there's the Ma Wangdui uh, manuscript, of course, that has many of these uh, commentaries, but they're in somewhat different forms, and they lack certain elements and add certain other elements. And so, um, there were swirling around in the late Zhou uh, period a number of these kinds of commentaries. And uh, all we know now for certain uh, is that there that they did exist, that there were these alternatives, but the final. Uh, version that became state orthodoxy in 136 BCE was these uh, wings that had gradually uh, accrued to the text. And we can we can date them by their language and by other um, indicators uh, to see that some of them were earlier, some of them were later. And all of them together amplified The uh, I Ching, in terms not only of giving it a coherent cosmology, uh, a very uh, powerful and beautifully written cosmological statement about what its role was and what the hexagrams did uh, and how they reflected these powers of nature, and how uh, the key question was really how to act in harmony with these, with the Tao, with the with these forces uh, of nature. And so they amplified it in very important and poetic ways. And then there were various other commentaries, uh, one called the great commentary that does this in particular. And then there were commentaries on the judgments. There were commentaries on the uh, trigrams, which were, of course the two constituent three-lined, um, symbols that uh, together constitute the, the hexagram. And so those commentaries then explain this enormous range of symbolic possibilities that any given trigram or hexga- hexagram might have. And so these commentaries taken together uh, managed to speak to the central importance of the I Ching as a cosmological document and to explain the symbolism and the structure and the use, including actually the technical uh, uh, dividing of the milfoil stocks that yields uh, the broken and solid lines that constitute uh, the hexagram. So as you say, it was an absolutely Critical development in the history of the text, and it helped enormously that these wings, or at least some of them had been attributed uh, to Confucius, although this is still a very contentious uh, question, and my own view is that at least in the received text um, of uh, thirteen uh, i'm sorry one thirty six bCE these probably do not represent in any meaningful way the hand of Confucius. Right.
0: Great. And this chapter, um, which is that we're talking about, which is chapter two of the book, uh, goes through all of the different wings. Um, it talks about the special importance, actually, and, and we'll see this later on in the book, that the great commentary or the comment also called the commentary on appended statements has. And it's you mentioned here, this is a, a this commentary acts as a kind of early biography of the Egypt, which again, it's, it's so interesting because we see these different layers of lives and life stories and life cycles, um, at the level, at the macro level of the book itself, but also here in sort of a book in a book in a book. So it, this is <laughs> anyone I think interested in biography as an approach. Um, there's a lot here to work with.
1: Well, thanks for reminding me of that because uh, it had slipped my mind, and it is true that 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 the great commentary uh, of the changes provides the kind of mythological structure uh, that explains the origins of the trigrams and uh, it explains also how trigrams were used to inspire certain technological inventions and so forth so it uh, it, it really gave us a a kind of early sense of how this document evolved, and although it's it's quite unlikely that the story of origins with Fuxi, the legendary culture hero, uh, is, is not at all true, and there are some speculations that suggest that rather than that story, which suggests the uh, importance of the trigrams as the core uh, elements of, of the hexagrams, and in fact, the hexagrams may well have been invented, and then the trigrams uh, resulting from a division. Of the six rather than a doubling of the three. So, uh, even though these stories, like many myths, don't tell us uh, perhaps exactly what, what occurred in these earlier periods, they do provide uh, a very interesting cultural explanation uh, that reflects the time in which they were created.
0: That's right. Now, as we move to the third chapter, um, we, and the third chapter is all about interpreting the changes, interpreting the I Ching. We move to contexts that give us a sense of what was done with the text at various points in Chinese history later on as we get to, you know beyond um, 136 BCE. So chapter 3 has two parts, and the first part, and this is really kind of the bulk of the chapter, looks at the different ways that Chinese commentators approached the I Ching from the 2nd century BCE all the way to the present. And one of the main um, One of the main kinds of distinctions that you draw here, and this is something that's crucial for understanding the different approaches that different commentators in this chapter are going to take, is the distinction between new text and old text scholarship. So um, for listeners who aren't familiar, I'll just kind of briefly sum up as, as you sum it up here in the book. Um, new text first right so new text scholars they deified Confucius again and mentioning that again in the context of a book that's part of a series on um, lives of great religious books these impo- you know these elements of that speak to um, the history of religion are actually really important right to bring out in this context so they deified Confucius they stressed the commonalities between the emperor and more common people. And they employed and used a really broad range of materials to defend their positions. And this broad range of materials um, touches on what I wanted to ask you to talk about in this context. One of the kinds of materials that they used uh, that you, I think, mentioned really helpfully here included numerically oriented predictive charts. Okay, so this becomes really important and just a fascinating part of the story for a lot of different reasons, but I want to ask you about a couple of those reasons now in particular. Sure. Um, Numbers become extremely important here in this context for understanding patterns of cosmic change as they relate to the changes. And I'd love if you could talk a little bit about that, because the emergence of a number um, as being so crucial for not just what happens in interpretations of this text, but that what happens um, when people are then later on using this text this is a key part of the story so number can you talk a little bit about that um, especially in this early part of the of the history of the text
1: sure i 'd be happy to uh, yes I think that um, the way to think about these early numbers and this is again a, uh, primarily a Han Dynasty phenomenon where this kind of numerology develops uh, very substantially. It's kind of like equations that we think of uh, in understanding the physical world. We have equations for gravity and equations for energy and so forth. And uh, although this is pre-scientific in the way that I just discussed equations, the idea was that a a proper understanding of these numerical correlations would help you to understand the, the ways of the cosmos. And so... Just as the trigrams and hexagrams were a means by which to understand these patterns and processes of nature, they became linked with numbers that likewise revealed these patterns of evolution. And so to, to understand the trigrams and the hexagrams and the numerology connected with them was a way to fathom the Tao again so that you had proper timing and proper positioning. Uh, I think I said somewhere in the book that the ritual ideal uh, of China, let me see if I can recall was something like you know doing the right thing at the right time, facing the right direction, <laughs> or something like that and and so these numbers these uh, these correlations of numbers uh, were a means by which to understand. The cosmos, and so the numbers were correlated with the trigrams. They were correlated with the hexagrams. They were correlated with the um, with time markers. Uh, there were a whole set of cosmic variables that were susceptible to numerical understandings. And this is where uh, works in the Song dynasty, such as the Hu, uh, the uh, River Chart, uh, and the Loshu. Uh, the uh, sort of low River writing, uh, were two mechanisms by which to uh, allow in a schematic form an understanding of the relationship between these numbers, these hexagrams, these trigrams, and various other cosmic variables.
0: And the um, the chapter, I think, does a really great job taking us through these different stages and the ways that scholars uh, who typified particular kinds of approaches in the Tang and the Song and thereafter uh, really used the, the kind of these different approaches toward number, toward image, um, toward what we might kind of relate back to new text and old text to do diff- very different things with the text. And so I'll just, I'll mention for listeners without asking you to talk um, about it too much because I want to get to John Cage, <laughs> um, but, okay. you, <laughs> but um, you take us through um, the sort of transformations in the Tong when Buddhist and Taoist scholarship begin to influence the interpretation of the I Ching. And then the song, as you just mentioned, um, where Neo-Confucianism draws heavily on the I Ching is a source of inspiration. And there's a really wonderful discussion here um, of the work of, uh, or work not just on these charts and diagrams, um, but also on Xiaoyong, whose work then, you know, becomes really important later on. Did you want to speak at all to this issue of charts and diagrams? You just briefly mentioned it, but because um, you, you're also working on cartography and other projects, and this seems to be a really crucial part of the book, this reliance on visual imagery in interpretations of this text.
1: Yes, that's again a, a wonderful observation. I think that the, the idea of charts. It had, it had been one that uh, one can find in earlier periods such as the Han, but it becomes an art form uh, sort of literally uh, in the Song Dynasty. And uh, I think it's part of a process also that one of your previous uh, interviewees, uh, Susan Huang, uh, also talked about with the Song Taoism. Uh, so that I think that this convergence of Taoism and uh, Confucianism and Buddhism and the intersections and interactions and borrowings and so forth lent themselves uh, very well to this sort of thing. So the Taoists use uh, these diagrams, the Buddhists use these diagrams, and of course they found there Way uh, into the uh, into the I and people like Xiaoyong, Sa- as you mentioned, uh, create these uh, absolutely phenomenally complex uh, structures. You know that explain everything, uh, all all kind of creation, all kinds of categories, um, and of course there were Chinese scholars, and maybe you'll get to this point uh, at some point in our discussion, but. Uh, It's true that throughout the history of the changes, there are always people who are criticizing these comprehensive schemes, uh, but they reflect this kind of mentality, first of all, that correlations are the key to cosmic understanding, and that secondly, if you can provide a kind of visualization of those, uh, of those uh, constructions with their numerical and other uh, elements that you'll have at your hand a kind of tool. And you're right, it, it's very similar to cartography and it's not an accident that large-scale represents, re- representations of space uh, in Chinese culture also begin in the Song Dynasty. And then they continue on and of course the Ming Dynasty is another uh, important uh, era when these kinds of illustrations uh, come to the fore. But uh, I mean, that's a very important, Important observation that you make.
0: Absolutely. And the second part of the chapter, after a lengthy discussion of the importance of Ju Shi in this context, and um, Ju Shi, as you mentioned here, considered the book fundamentally a work on divination, and there's a really wonderful um, discussion of that here. After that, the second part of the chapter looks at the divinatory role of the I Ching in Chinese society, paying special attention to the ways that the text was used by different people. Um, And there are a lot of really wonderful Qing examples here by emperors, officials, by scholars, by professional fortune tellers. One of the really, um, for me, uh, you know, thinking a lot about the Qing lately, uh, one of the really interesting accounts that you give us was the account of Kangxi's use, Uh, Emperor Kangxi's use of the Yijing. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because the the account here is particularly fascinating, I think.
1: Oh, well, thank you. Um, I actually took my inspiration. Jonathan Spence, uh, one of my great heroes, um, had uh, written the book, as you know, Emperor of China. Mm-hmm. And in it, uh, when I was looking at, uh, the book and reading it closely, I, I found that, uh, Jonathan had cited several instances where the Kangxi Emperor, uh, divined with the I Ching or uh, together with his advisors used it. And so I just, from that, went uh, into the Qing Dynasty records, uh, particularly the records of activity and repose, and and found more and more illustrations. And in fact, this was just the tip of the iceberg. I think, I think the Kangxi Emperor was one of the most um, avidly interested in the I Ching, and, uh, so, and, and in divination more generally, but uh, particularly I Ching, and it was so, in his mind, so sophisticated, and so uh, part of what he ended up doing, uh, as, as you know, is commissioning a vast uh, addition of the um, of the I Ching, the, the Kangxi edition, that uh, is just extraordinary. For among other things, the hundreds of commentaries that he added to it, uh, and it was eventually published in 1715, as I recall. But um, yeah, he he just seemed to see it as uh, what? How should I put this? He saw the book in all of its dimensions its divinatory dimensions, its moral dimensions, the way that it shed light in his mind uh, on uh, questions of nature, uh, questions of technology. There was virtually no realm. Uh, in his experience, that for which the I Ching didn't seem to provide some kind of guidance. And that really speaks to the larger issue, again, that you may well want to talk about, and that is the extraordinary range uh, of uses of the I Ching in in virtually every realm of culture, from language and philosophy and religion to art, literature, architecture, social customs, music. um, And in all those areas, he had an interest in it. And so um, one of the... Conclusions that I wanted to draw in the in the book uh, is, and I may have uh, articulated in the beginning. I, I honestly, there's a way in which I confuse sometimes my 2008 book uh, on the I Ching and this uh, the shorter biography. But at some point in one of those books, I, um, you know, I tried to emphasize this um, theme that the I Ching is simple only to the simple-minded. And that if you investigate it uh, earnestly and sincerely, uh, it will yield important insights about just just about everything. And so even if you may not accept its metaphysics, it's a challenge to the mind. And I think that's how Kangxi viewed it. Uh, I believe he believed in those metaphysics as well. This idea of correlative uh, cosmology and so forth, but uh, fundamentally, I think it was a document that required intense scrutiny, intense study, and so he would spend days uh, studying a single hexagram, and in so doing, I think... you know, found a means by which to challenge his own intellect and to bring out the best in it. And so even though the I Ching is always susceptible to multiple interpretations, the more creativity you bring to it, uh, the more likely it will yield uh, important insights. And that's how he saw it.
0: Great. Thank you. And there's um, a series also in that chapter of really interesting accounts of ways that the I Ching was used Uh, For the purpose of divination and military affairs, which gets us, um, which maybe not gets us back to, but harkens back to, I think, one of your earlier comments at the very beginning of our conversation, when you talked about your interest, your early interest in the kind of cultural components or cultural manifestations of uh, military history and military affairs. There's some really wonderful material here on
1: that well thank you yeah that was what uh, again I did try to mention that my initial interest in military affairs piqued my interest in divination I saw the troops divining before uh, their uh, before battle and recently Robin Yates has done some wonderful work on military ritual but that got me into this whole world and so uh, by stages I came to see these practical applications uh, of divination whether it was in the interest of determining what the weather would be or whether the troop movements would be, or where something lost might be found, all of those kinds of things led to much larger, um, much larger kinds of conversations and investigations of the way that these practices were ritualized and um, you know instantiated in actual, uh, actual activities. I think again, it's so hard. This is one of the most difficult things for me in teaching is to get my students to understand and to appreciate. Uh, this cosmology on its own terms, this idea that you could know fate, and then having known fate, you can establish fate, that you can devise a moral strategy for dealing with the circumstances that you will, you will encounter. And so by stages, the limited act of just deciding when to march <laughs> or how large the enemy might be or anything like that um, it became then something that was highly ritualized and um, and cosmologically grounded, and and you were a part of that cosmos. I mean, you know, of course, uh, as every China person knows, that the idea was that human beings could act in concert with heaven uh, and and get things done, and that's an idea that I think we have very a, g- a great deal of difficulty transmitting to our our students with their particular cultural background.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And as we get into now the part two of the book, uh, there are various ways in which in different cultural contexts, in different local contexts, ideas and approaches toward what it means to know and to shape one's fate um, start becoming imbricated in uses of and sort of scholarly and also um, popular interpretations of the I y- Ching. So, the fourth chapter, and this is, um, there are two chapters in part two, four and five. The fourth chapter looks at the reception of and transformations of the I Ching in Japan, Korea, Vietnam, and Tibet. And there are really interesting accounts of the ways that this text was used and interpreted and sort of domesticated in Japan, in China. What I want to ask you to talk a little bit about, uh, though, at this point, is um, the case of Vietnam and the case of Tibet, because in both of these cases, um, there's some really interesting and really surprising kinds of sources that you bring into the discussion. Mm-hmm. Now, um, in the case of looking at Vietnam, one of the um, one of the things that you mention here. Um, is that uh, you looked at, or, or somebody looked at? There were <laughs> there were um, texts looked at that were handwritten manuscripts in the Hanoi National Library, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. were written at least in part in Nome um, Right. That and you bring these into the discussion. Can you talk about that? Because that's that that was just immediately struck me um, as being c- completely fascinating as part of the story.
1: Well, thanks again. Yes, I. Um I spent several uh, long periods of time in Hanoi looking at these uh, records and uh, i was um, I was really quite fascinated. It turns out now that they have they have digitized all of these images. And so my countless hours of painstaking uh, writing and transcribing are for not now. But uh, it does mean that uh, you can you can get a hold of these manuscripts, including the Gnome Manuscripts. Uh, there's something called the Gnome Foundation uh, that I think I gave credit to in the acknowledgements. And anyone who goes to that website uh, can access uh, these, um, uh, these texts. But uh, for those uh, listening who may not know, uh, the gnome was a a form of writing that was based on the same principles of chinese characters but they were designed to be different uh, at the same time in their in their uh, for, uh, formation and they were to be pronounced in vietnamese so uh, that it was true that throughout most of the period uh, of uh, vietnamese history for reasons that lie in uh, lie in China's very uh, intense. <laughs> how should I put this delicately? Uh, that, that lie in uh, in China's imperialism <laughs> in North uh, Vietnam, and then also uh, the continued uh, influence of Chinese culture. Uh, so. Um, most of these texts were written in classical Chinese, but a few of them are written in a combination of classical Chinese and gnome because this was a, a means by which uh, the Vietnamese scholars were able to what I call generally, uh, as part of this process, domesticate the text to make it seem um, less foreign and um, more uh, more accessible. You know, less less Chinese, you might say, and more Vietnamese. And similar kinds of things happen in the case of Uh, Japan, uh, and Korea, uh, and Tibet, as we'll get to in just a moment. But um, So these texts uh, are a combination of gnome uh, and uh, classical Chinese, and they're quite fascinating. And I had to go to specialists. Uh, There are very few gnome specialists in the world, Uh, but um, I was able to contact a couple of them who helped me with these characters. Uh, Some of them are are kind of... um, uh, They're fairly easy to decipher. For example, uh, the character for for heaven uh, consists of the Chinese term, Tian, and then below it, the Chinese term, Shang, to, to go upward. Uh, and so it's an invention that domesticates the language, makes it feel more Vietnamese, and yet still conveys these kinds of, uh, of meanings. And so it was important in all these cultures, as it is Universally, I think, in the process of transnational communication to make these things one's own. And I I took a lot of inspiration also from a woman, I can't think of her first name, but her last name was Hoffmeyer, that wrote a a book on the transmission of um, Pilgrim's Progress to Africa and the way there, too, uh, these processes of domestication uh, took place. So I was inspired by other forms of scholarship, and I began to think that no matter what happens to a text anywhere in the world, some process of domestication uh, ensues, like, for example, the way Americans have domesticated uh, uh, feng shui or, or even traditional Chinese medicine.
0: And the, the trope of domestication also brings us back to uh, a, an organic approach to a text, right? The text as a living kind of a thing. If it can be domesticated, the implication is it's something that can change and ca- is potentially alive, right? Right. So, can you talk a little bit about the ways that the I Ching was domesticated for use in Tibet? Because, again, this is um, just a, a particularly, I think, interesting part of that chapter.
1: Sure. Uh, Yes. As a matter of fact, I mean, again, it's a sort of it's a it's a part of the process that um, also took place in China itself. So, of course, as we discussed just very briefly, there were Taoist commentaries on the the basic text. There were uh, and uh, the Ten Wings, there were uh, Buddhist commentaries, there were Islamic commentaries, there were Christian commentaries um, all in China. And so uh, this process took place in China as well, and they became uh, domesticated not in terms of another culture, but in, uh, well, I suppose you could say in terms of Buddhist or Taoist or Christian or Islamic culture. Uh, So those things happened within China proper. But when it moves across the borders, uh, the process is often much more dramatic. And so in the case of Tibet, because Tibet, most Tibetans did not know classical Chinese. Um, there was a great difference between the case of Korea, Vietnam, uh, and Japan, where, as you know, classical Chinese was the lingua franca of the elites. So in, uh, in the case of Tibet, um, the process of domestication uh, w- w- accelerated in certain ways, took certain directions by virtue of the pre-existing culture, and no deeply embedded tradition of the elites using classical chinese so they wrote in tibetan uh they borrowed selectively they changed the names uh, sometimes uh or the primary associations uh, of the trigrams they used the lo shu um but were not very interested in the hatu <laughs> uh, you know they they just Picked selectively from the document to suit their own purposes, and so Tibetan divination uh, is a kind of amalgamation of Chinese techniques, including uh, a trigram interpretation, but also uh, Indian divinatory techniques. And so, it's a it's a very interesting uh, example of the selective, uh, you know, the, the the selection of particular elements of another culture that seem particularly uh, important uh, to to Tibetans.
0: And as we get into this um, last part of our conversation, the last part of the book, I'll mention also that we could we could really have talked for an entire hour (laughs) or two or three just about this part of the book too. There's so much going on here. It's such a rich part of the book um, that we're not going to have a chance to talk about, but I'll just sort of mention that for listeners um, to really there's just so much going on here um, in in looking at its transnational travels. Now, as we move to chapter five of the book, this looks at problems of translation that came about that arose when the I Ching was introduced to Western audiences. And this is really an interesting part of the book, um, again, for scholars or readers who are interested in translation history and translation studies in a really interesting way and without being kind of overwhelmingly about, you know, know, a kind of a a discourse of translation theory. It really shows us in concrete examples ways that the text was translated differently and the implications of that and the way that that reflects larger commitments uh, that these different translators have toward not just issues of the text, but also toward sort of attitudes toward China in general.
1: Well... Oh, I, I think you had a question there. No, no,
0: no please go on. I was just
1: going to say that the uh, the – I'm going to give this other book a plug here again. The last chapter of Mapping China and Managing the World deals with the Jesuits, and this uh, – which I could deal with only very uh, – in a very cursory way uh, in the biography, but uh, at length uh, in this last chapter, there's a discussion of this interesting interplay by which the the Jesuits, on the one hand – um, took the I Ching and tried to assimilate it to biblical history on the one hand, and then they took the I Ching and brought it back to Europe, hoping to um, make it sound like an alluring book uh, for Europeans. So they were they were kind of working both ends of the uh, of the earth, you might say, uh, in an effort to. Um, Uh, to find common ground between Europe, uh, and, and China in particular. And so when, um, when the, the Jesuits brought the story back, uh, to the West, of course, um, there was a, uh, there was a correspondence between a guy named Bouvet, uh, and Leibniz. And this was, uh, the kind of beginning of an appreciation of Chinese culture. Again, for the purposes of the, of the recipient culture, you might say, um, but it then developed into, Tremendous rivalries uh, between different kinds of scholars, uh, not only within the the Catholic Church more generally, uh, but then also by scholars um, who, with varying degrees of capability and various agendas, uh, rendered it uh, and uh, attacked one another (laughs) uh, vociferously. And so that story appears in part in uh, the Eging of Biography, but it also uh, appears more substantially in that and more fully documented. Uh, in the chapter on the Jesuits and the Yijing.
0: Great. Thank you so much for that. And I'm gonna I'm gonna go to that chapter. I think shortly after our conversation because it's fascinating stuff. And the chapter uh, after talking about um, the context of missionaries, Bouvet, Leibniz, looking at examples of scholarly rival, uh, rivalry in translations. Um, for example, trans- comparing translations of Leg, trans- comparing translation of that with um, Richard Wilhelm, whose translation winds up becoming really really important. Later on in the story, because Wilhelm's translation is actually uh, taken up and used by other writers and artists later on in their own engagements with the I Ching. You, yes. you also talk briefly here, um, and this gets us uh, back just very briefly to the issue of number, about Alistair Crowley and his relationship with the I and his way of relate- relating it to other mystical systems like the Kabbalah, mm-hmm. um, which is really interesting. There are though um, as we kind of come to the end of our time um I would love to hear your thoughts on all of this stuff, but I'm going to ask you, again, for the sake of time, um, just to talk about a couple of things that come afterwards in this story. You talk a little bit about the way that the I Ching is embraced by a counterculture in the 60s and 70s. Can you talk a little bit about that as a way of sort of bringing us from there into um, the sort of later use by other musicians and artists?
1: Sure. In fact, it is an interesting uh, I, this brings us back to an earlier part of the conversation. It is an interesting feature of the, of the life of this text that in East Asia, in China, certainly, and again, Vietnam, Korea, Japan, um, and to an extent in, in Tibet, it's a mainstream cultural phenomenon. And there is no stigma attached to it except for the stigma uh, that elites attached to people that they didn't believe were worthy of its use. So that, in other words, the critiques of uh, divination were never over the practice of divination, but rather over the schemes uh, and practices of people who seemed somehow immorally or or less morally uh, qualified to use it than than Chinese elites. In other words, it was a, a kind of class prejudice, but... Divination itself was a mainstream cultural activity, and in my book, Fortune Tellers and Philosophers, it documents this at great length. Um, but when it goes to the West, although the Jesuits initially try to make it seem like uh, like the Bible and try to find affinities with uh, binary theory of Leibniz and so forth, fundamentally it's countercultural. It, it's used to provoke the status quo to challenge conventional um, conventional values, and um, so in the '60s, in particular, when there was this tremendous countercultural movement, it was a document that, like Zen Buddhism and uh, several other, and Kabbalah, for example, uh, also that you know it was part of an alternative tradition that challenged the prevailing mainstream culture. Uh, you may be interested to know. I, I, read, I wrote a little, a little um, piece for the Huffington Post in which I uh, approached these issues much more lightheartedly. I don't know what the URL is, but I suppose if you accessed eJing and maybe my name um, and uh, Huffington Post, it, it would come up. Uh, but I tried to deal with this in a more lighthearted vein and to talk about uh, Crowley and, um, and Dylan and, and other people. Uh, so just, you know, if your listeners uh, want to sort of see the, the the more lighthearted me it will come out in that way. But the fundamental point I'm trying to make is that uh yes, Yijing uh challenged existing values, it challenged exis- existing um structures of authority and so forth. It just provided uh, a, an alternative universe for people. And as a child of the sixties myself, I can I can tell you that it was uh, it It was enormously pervasive, and I think we used it in all kinds of questionable ways. Uh, But, you know, it was something that just was our statement or the statement of that generation about dissatisfaction with middle-class frozen dinner culture.
0: (laughs) So thank you. Um, So finally, I've been threatening this all Conversation. I've mentioning <laughs> I have a copy of John Cage's Silence on my office desk, and I've been threatening this. So we're going to finally get to John Cage, but we're going to get to him via, or you get, I'll mention that you get to him in the book via Bob Dylan, John Lennon, Allen Ginsberg, Philip K. Dick, <laughs> Raymond Cano. Jorge Luis Borges, Octavio Paz, and a ton of other people. This is a fascinating cultural history of uh, of uses of the e And one of the uh, moments of that history uh, is when you talk about the use by John Cage and his partner Merce Cunningham of uh-huh. the e So, can you talk a little bit about that um, for? totally selfish reasons because i find this fascinating and i'm sorry if <laughs> listeners
1: don't find there's it there's no so better <laughs> reason really i mean uh, as it turns out you've been very gracious and uh, given me the opportunity to talk about this book i can certainly say a little bit about john cage i i had known something about his composition uh, we have some people at the shepherd uh, music school here at rice who uh, who are interested in his work and so i listened to it and i became interested in the idea Idea of this sort of aging-driven uh, uh, composition, and Mirs um, Cunningham too, I came to through that kind of investigation, and I began to see that they were part of this much larger framework, this fluxus uh, kind of movement uh, that I hadn't really appreciated. And so, one of the things that I have found. Satisfying about this whole exercise is how much I have learned about my own culture. Uh, that this provided a kind of means of investigating these things, and these stories are just, you know, just glimpses uh, of uh, much more substantial stories. I mean, you could take any one of these individuals and uh, certainly make a life story about them. And so, these are the children of the I Ching, you might say.
0: Perfect. Now, Rich, thank you so much um, for taking the time to talk with me today. Now, there's a ton in the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about. A ton, a ton, a ton, a ton, Um, including, but not limited to, a really interesting discussion at the end of the book, where you're relating this to the larger thread of the implications of the reading of this text, the nature of this text, to the history of science and medicine. And there's a, a really wonderful account of Um, The relationship of Joseph Needham and Crick, the uh, DNA (laughs) Crick, to this, which is, I'm going to hang that out there for listeners. So buy the book and read the book and you will understand what the I Ching has to do with um, one of the fathers of modern uh, DNA. Okay, but uh, I'm not
1: going to explain why because it's the no. You know, I, uh, we have to have some secrets, but I, <laughs> I do want to say that uh, Joseph, uh, in addition to Fairbank, uh, Joseph Needham was the other great figure in Chinese studies that I knew very well and was a very good uh, friend of mine. And if we had more time, I would tell you about his visit to Rice, where he played the game Frogger with my young son. Oh, let's, uh, make,
0: let's make time. Let's well, make time.
1: well I do that at, at some point, but uh, I did want to say that Fairbank. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Needham was extremely hostile uh, to the I Ching. And one of the sources of our many conversations and sometimes vigorous debates uh, was over the place of the I Ching in Chinese uh, science and medicine. Uh, And uh, I think he had a very narrow uh, view. I mean, he was a very broad-minded person in a thousand ways. Um, But um, uh, we did have a a certain... uh, There was a certain difference of opinion uh, that we had about uh, the place of the I Ching in science. And again, I think he he believed that the idea of the I Ching and the hexagrams was that there were a, a mechanism I think he called for pigeonholing novelty. And I think that that is a, a relatively uncharitable uh, interpretation, that again, it is true, as in all things, that people who use the I Ching in a narrow way, uh, come out with narrow interpretations. But viewed more broadly, uh, it is a very challenging and interesting document. And I think it, was, it, it did have a certain scientific uh, value, not so much in terms of what we would call modern science, uh, but uh, in terms of categorizing experience and um, on occasion, as with the Kangxi Emperor, for example, um, provoking a further investigation.
0: So, Rich, is there anything else about the book that we didn't cover, but that you'd like to point out for listeners, especially perhaps for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book?
1: Well, um, the only thing I would say uh, is uh, – and I had mentioned it earlier, but I think it it does bear repeating, and I talk about it not only in the I Ching biography but also in the uh, earlier uh, Fathoming the Cosmos volume – is what extraordinary importance it had as an analytical device uh, in shaping forms of discourse – uh, in amplifying philosophy, particularly metaphysics, um, in providing a format for various forms of religious expression, and uh, as an analytical vocabulary in art, uh, in literature, in uh, all of these kinds of realms, and, of course, um, also in medicine, as you were saying before. I think that we sometimes forget uh, that... Um, Medicine is a cultural phenomenon, Uh, and uh, I mean, I don't, of course, have to tell you this, but I think that, uh, that often we think that if we have a system of medicine in which the variables do not resonate with our understandings of medicine, it's very difficult to take those seriously, and my point would be always... Uh, when in doubt, take take this material ser- seriously. Uh, and to uh, I find my vo- my voice is rising here. I'm I'm making a case here, <laughs> but uh, I do want to I do want to emphasize that I myself I'm not what you would call um, a devotee of the changes. I'm interested in it as a cultural phenomenon, but my point is, the deeper we go, the more you examine it, the more you understand why the greatest minds in Chinese history for 3,000 years were completely absorbed by this document.
0: Great. Well, now that the book's out, and again, congratulations on the book. It's a, I think it's a contribution not just for broad readers, um, but also for specialists and also uh, especially for those of us who are teaching, now that this is out, what's next for you? What project or what material is inspiring you at the moment?
1: Well, I have several uh, irons in the fire, uh, but the one that's uh, immediately in sight is I'm going to do a third Uh, revised edition of my book, China's Cultural Heritage. Uh, I'm going to do it for a new press uh, for Roman Littlefield. Um, The editor there is a longtime friend of mine, and I published my first book with Westview with her. Um, But what I think is important about that book is that it will uh, change in its orientation. The first book, uh, had to do primarily, it was called China's Cultural Heritage, the Qing Dynasty, 1644-1912. The new edition is going to be the Qing Dynasty, 1644-1912, and China's Cultural Heritage. In other words, I'm trying to change the focus from looking primarily at Chinese culture as Chinese culture within the framework of this dynasty and look more carefully of how the dynasty, how the Manchus, looked at this cultural tradition and how it intersected with their own uh, domestic um, uh, traditions, including traditions of shamanism and divination, so I'm I'm trying to globalize, uh, you might say, or transnationalize uh, that book as well, and that's a, a very exciting project for me.
0: Excellent. Well, I will look forward to talking with you about that once that's out too. <laughs> Actually, it <laughs> sounds great. Thank you so much, Rich, and thanks for making the time to be with us today.
1: Oh, it was my pleasure, Carla, and uh, I look forward to chatting with you, at least informally, uh, in the future.
0: You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we will see you next time.